Most people have heard of phytoestrogens, but did you know there are beneficial phytoandrogens that mimic and support testosterone and more? The top source of these is pine pollen. If you're looking for 100% natural hormonal support for men and women, you've got to try this. Right now, Lost Empire Herbs' best-selling pine pollen is available for one penny plus shipping and handling. Go to GeniusPollen.com to find out more and grab yourself a bag today. No hidden charges, no trial offer, no shenanigans. Just a low-cost way to try Lost Empire Herbs' top product for next to nothing. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Dr. Cassie Holmes. She's the author of Happier Hour, How to Beat Distraction, Expand Your Time, and Focus on What Matters Most. She's a professor at UCLA's Anderson School of Management. She's an expert on time and happiness. And we're going to talk about her research and why she wrote the book and what's in the book. So, Cassie, thanks for coming. Well, thanks so much for having me, Richard. It's a treat to be here and to chat with you. Oh, thank you. Well, tell me about uh, a little bit about your background. Were you like a particularly distracted person, and that's what got you into this area of research, or you know, what's your background like? <laughs> yeah, um, I feel like we are all distracted people. I mean, mm. tis the age in which we have lots of distractions, including that never-ending to-do list that's in our head. Um, what motivated me in my work. So I focus on happiness and understanding the role of time. Um, and my PhD is uh, as a, I'm trained as a social psychologist. And, but what drove me to study happiness and in particular, the role of time was recognizing just how limiting time I experienced time to be in terms of achieving all that I wanted to, as well as enjoying um, life in the way that I wanted to. And as uh, there's sort of a particular moment um, earlier in my career where I sort of it came face to face with my experience of time poverty, which is uh, the term that we use to describe this acute feeling of having uh, too much to do and too little time to do it all. And it was earlier in my career when I was the faculty at Wharton in Philadelphia, and I had a four-month-old baby, and I had agreed to give a talk up in New York, so it was one of these, like, I woke up super early, missed those morning cuddles with my little one, and between back-to-back meetings, giving the talk, and then, you know, the dinner that comes after the talk, I was rushing to make the very last train that would get me home to my four-month-old and my husband. And I was sitting on the train that night and I remember it so vividly because I was just so exhausted. And as I was looking at the sort of the houses and the, you know, whiz by in the dark, I was like, oh my gosh, life is passing so 
fast. There mm. is, you know, between trying to keep up with the pressures of my job, between trying to be a good parent, good partner, good friend, trying to keep it so my house isn't super gross, you know, like there are, you know, household tasks to stay on top of. I was realizing that it just felt like too much. And I considered leaving my career under like with this recognition that it was sort of too much to do. Could I continue to keep up with it? I didn't feel like I was doing any of it very well, nor enjoying any of it along the way. And so this I get, sort of, um, yeah. I get a, a quick story. Um, it just brought it to mind, if you don't mind. In college, yeah. I, you know, I used to, I did engineering. I used to take like 16 to 18 credit hours a semester. And there were a couple of guys that were going crazy, like doing like 22, 24 credit hours. So one semester I was like, all right. And I, I upped it to like 21 credit hours, but it was the worst semester I've ever had in terms of grades, time, happiness, everything. It was just too much. And when I got overwhelmed that much for the whole semester, it was, it was terrible. So I kind of got a taste of what you're talking about, I think. Absolutely. So time poverty, like I mentioned, this feeling of having too much to do and not enough time to do it with you and all of those credit hours. So many people and the tasks that they take on or the tasks that are just sort of presented to them. And it is, it's very pervasive. So we conducted a national poll and we found that almost half of Americans, it's report being time poor. And it's not just as Americans, you know, folks around the globe report having sort of constantly being rushed and being hurried. And this is bad because our research shows that when we feel time poor, it makes us less healthy. So we're less likely to exercise, less likely to, uh, we're, we're likely to delay going to the doctor. We eat more fast food, <laughs> which is unhealthy. It makes us less nice. So when we feel time poor, we're less likely to take the time to help others out. It decreases our confidence in being able to achieve all that we set out to achieve. And ultimately- when, when, you, um, when you say it makes people less nice, what does that yeah. say about New Yorkers? Yeah. It's true. It is absolutely true. Um, and there was actually an earlier sociological study where it studied the sort of speed of various cities through walking pace, um, through, and then they had these sort of interesting measures to see basically like how nice are people. And so they had this measure where they, um, you know, left a letter that needed to be mailed and it was stamped and they were interested in seeing how many people took the time to pick up the letter and then put it in a mailbox. Um, and finding that in those cities in New York is a, the sort of primary example that are faster paced, more hurried, people are less helpful, less likely to help others out and spend the time. Not only does it make us less nice, but it also makes us less happy. And so in our work, we found that those who feel time poor are experience more negative emotions, so more greater stress and worry, less positive emotions, so less enjoyment um, in their days, and they feel less satisfied in their lives overall. So these feelings, you in that semester and me in this, you know, night on the train, it is an unhappy state and something to combat. And that's actually what has driven my research since. So I didn't decide mm -hmm. to quit my job. Instead, I decided to figure out empirically, how can we tackle this experience of time poverty?
You know, it'd be weird if you did an experiment where you had someone dress up shabbily and pretend to be like a, a bum. And but instead of begging for money, they had a sign that said, like, you know, I have time poverty, please help. I wonder what people <laughs> would do or say, or it'd be interesting if you did that with a few different signs related to time and, and people might walk by and like they would either shake their head, what? Or they would donate, or I don't know what they would do. Well, the interesting thing is like, how can you give others time? And there are ways to, in terms of being helpful, perhaps by, you know, taking on some of their tasks. But interestingly, unlike money where you're walking by and it's like you could give them, you know, some dollars from your wallet, giving time, um, it's harder to give others uh, time, but it's certainly worthwhile. So we have actually... Uh, a study with Zoe Chance and Mike Norton, where we found that even though when we feel time poor, we're less likely to give time, we found that actually, if you do um, give time, it makes you feel like you have more time, um, which is interesting. And you're sort of like, how is that possible? And it um, is driven by feelings of self-efficacy. So just as an example, in one of our experiments, we conducted among adults on a Saturday and we randomly assigned them. We gave them either the instruction, sometime today, spend 30 minutes doing something for someone else that you weren't already planning to do. So that was a giving time condition. We told others sometime today, spend 30 minutes doing something for yourself that you weren't already planning to do. And then at the end of the day, at, um, that night, we reconnected with these participants and we asked them, to report how much time they felt like they had. And interestingly, those who spent the time on someone else actually felt like they had more time. And the reason is, is that by spending time to help another, you actually feel really effective. It makes you realize that A, I accomplished a lot in just that 30 minutes and recognizing just how much you can accomplish in that 30 minutes, you're like, oh my gosh, I can do more with the time and I, that I have and recognize, you know, sort of touching back to the definition of time poverty. It's this feeling of having not enough time to do what you want to do. But when you lessen that sense of constraint, then it makes you feel more time affluent. Um, and so not only would it be lovely, uh, you know, to give time for the recipient of the time, it also benefits you as well. Most supplements are taken on faith and can take weeks or months to have an effect. Even supplements backed by scientific studies may or may not deliver those same benefits to you. But what if you could feel the results of what you took within just a few days? Lost Empire Herbs offers the highest quality, wild-harvested, non-irradiated pine pollen, and that can dramatically impact your hormones fast. Right now, you can grab it for one cent plus shipping and handling at GeniusPollen.com. How much is there a sweet spot of time where it doesn't really affect someone negatively or it brings this positive benefit? Like, is 15 minutes too little? You know, has anyone studied the dynamics of it or the type yeah. of activity that seems to work versus not work? Absolutely. I studied it. <laughs> so, in that night on the train, I was like, okay, should I quit my job? And then I wondered, would I be happier if I had a whole lot more time? And this is the question we put to the test. So, with Hal Hirschfield and Marissa Sharif, we look to explore what's the relationship between the amount of discretionary time 
people have in their days and their overall happiness and satisfaction. And to sort of operationalize that, what we did is we analyzed data from the American Time Use Survey, which captures for tens of thousands of working and non-working Americans, how they spent the hours of a random day. And what we did is we calculated for each individual how many hours they spent on discretionary activities, which are, you know, relaxing, active leisure. So, you know, playing sports or, you know, going to a concert or going to watch sports, um, as well as social uh, socializing. So spending time with family and friends. And what we found was really interesting. The relationship was an inverted U shape that is what we found was there was such thing as having so on one side of that arc you know that sort of rainbow shape when on the left side yes having too little time was bad like people were less happy and so those of us who are time poor you in that semester absolutely can relate to that but what's interesting is that on the other side of you know that other um end of the arc is that we found that having too much time is also bad, which is interesting because I wasn't expecting that. A, it, you know, it told me not to quit my job because actually having too many hours in my day to do whatever I wanted isn't necessarily good. And the reason for that seems to be that we are averse to this sense of being idle that we don't want to spend our whole days with nothing to show for how we spend those hours. We're sort of, we want to be somewhat productive. And so when we have too much time, it undermines our sense of purpose and therefore our feelings of satisfaction. What's interesting, so like, yes, there's this arc. And then there was this middle portion, actually, where between, in this data set, anyway, less than about two hours of discretionary time in the day is too little. More than about five hours of discretionary time in the day is too much. But between two and five hours, the it was actually quite flat. So it's not that having more time would be better. It's And so this is sort of interesting because it suggests that in this pretty wide range, it's not so much about how much time you have. It's really about how you invest the time you have. So before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and we'll be able to solicit donations to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. I would say well, there also is... too in, yeah. in that study, um, the chunk size of the time. So like it's you know it'd be easy for someone to have let's say three hours a day free because they fritter away a minute here, a minute there, five minutes here, but you know. But if they had it in like one chunk, I think it would feel a lot better to that person, even if they had less. Like 
if I had three hours and bits and drabs and someone else had one hour solid uninterrupted, I would think that they would feel better than I would. I don't know. Yeah, that's a fantastic hypothesis. And we didn't look at that in the data in terms of how those hours are broken up across well, the how day. Come you, you ran out of time? <laughs> right. It's um, always the sort of story of our life. But in other work, actually, where we were looking at how variety among one's activities relates to their satisfaction and happiness, it might actually speak to your hunch. What we found there is that it's good to have variety across your days and across your weeks because it keeps you interested and engaged. But what we actually found was when there were too, too much variety within the hours of your day, you actually saw this like less happiness and satisfaction because people felt like they weren't able to sort of, <laughs> I think it's actually in line with what you were suggesting is this sort of breaking up of activities that you're doing, which isn't satisfying. You feel like you're not actually accomplishing anything because everything's all broken up. And so well, what, that would suggest this ties that, into like, I'm sorry, I, we'll get to it shortly, but um, I'm acting the same way. I, I feel like I've become fragmented. My attention span shorter. I, I apologize. I try not to interrupt as much. Go ahead. I wanted to ask you about smartphone usage and the internet when you're ready. Um, well, let's talk about it now because that's absolutely this fragmentation and distraction, which was even your initial question, is an important one because we're also subject to it. So, yeah. Do you want me to talk about smartphone usage or do you want to ask? A yeah, if you would, please. Way? Yeah, that uh, fragmentation, you know, constant switching of attention, et cetera, because I would think that would dramatically influence people's perception of time and their happiness level and their available time. Yeah. Um, and so the role of smartphone usage, I think, really comes into play with respect to um, distraction, even the presence of our smartphones. So there was an interesting study. Well, and you can understand why, because these smartphones, they are so darn smart. This little tiny thing that can, you know, live in our pocket and is always at arm's reach allows us to do so much. It allows us to entertain ourselves through, you know, watching <laughs> anything that's streaming. It allows us to watch other people's lives through, um, you know, social media. Um, it allows us to get our chores done by, you know, ordering things that we need on Amazon. Or It is this source of all these things that we can and should be doing all of the time, right? And so just having it there, that is a source of distraction because it's pulling you away from what you are currently doing, thinking about all that you could and should be doing. And actually sort of before I talk about the effects of that, we have data, which initial data that's looking at the effect of time poverty, because as I mentioned, you know, what is time poverty? It's this feeling of having too much to do and not enough time to do it. And by having your smartphone always there, these expectations of ourselves, of all that we could and should be doing, of course, there is not enough hours in the day to do it all. But even more directly, there was a neat study conducted by Liz Dunn and her colleagues showing the distracting effect of the presence of smartphones. And what she did was she had groups of participants who were dining with a group of friends. 
and they had them either keep their cell phones on the table and they had some cover story as to why versus put their their phones away out of sight not on the table and then they measured their enjoyment of the meal afterwards and um, what they found was that simply having the phone out made people enjoy their time with this you know having a lovely meal with your friends less and the reason is because they reported being more distracted and less engaged so it even has this cognitive effect but then also as we're thinking about the amount of time we have there are a limited number of hours in our days and when you track i actually have um I teach a course called Applying the Science of Happiness to Life Design, which is sharing the research on the science of happiness to my MBA students so that they can apply it to their lives, so they can enjoy their days more and sort of design their careers and their life so that it's more fulfilling and in line with their values and purpose. In so, um, quick, quick tip yeah. here, um, yeah, I've noticed when eating, you know, a lot of people put their phones on the table, so do I, but having it face down versus face up is a dramatic difference. Face up, it's like almost impossible to not look at it whenever it lights up, but face down, it's easier. It's kind of more inert. It would be mm -hmm. better to not even have it on the table, but if you had to do something, that's maybe a start. You know? I mean, it's not a big step to take it off the table. If you're, you know, put it in, um, in a bag under the table or in the other room, it's like, you know, when you get home, after the workday, or if you, you know, like leave your home office at the end of the workday, is you can put your phone away. It's very, you know, it's, we don't often do it, but it's very possible. In the course, I actually have my students do a digital detox where I assign them to spend six hours at some point, consecutive hours, a chunk of six hours sometime during their week, um, not on technology, so off their phone. And it's interesting to see the very profound impact on their emotions, on their engagement. On, and I will also say that my students do not like this assignment initially. And they're super mad at me because they're like, I have so much to do. And, you know, you're, I'm like undermining their ability to be productive and someone will need to reach them. And they were very anxious about it. And they continue to be anxious actually in the first hour often. Um, and that sort of habit of continually reaching for your, the phone and wondering, you know, who's trying to reach me and that sort of sense of FOMO. Well, what are you doing uh, in your, are you teaching again in the classroom? And if so, you know, what's your smartphone policy and what have you tried there? Yeah, and I will, I will get to that. But I think before I do, I want to make the point that after that initial hour of them being anxious, they very much settle into what they're doing. and actually end up being more productive because it's not that fragmented, you know, like, what should I be doing in this sort of distraction? And they really engage in tasks as well as whom they're with. And through that greater presence, not being distracted, they feel so much more satisfied um, coming out of that time. In my class, I have a very strict no technology policy, which again, my students initially are like, what are you trying to do to us? But it is absolutely for their learning and for their happiness, because research shows that when we are more attentive to the present moment, when we are engaged in our current activity, we enjoy that time more. We get more out of it. And so 
despite their initial grumpiness um, coming out of even the first class um, and certainly coming out of the course, they realize the incredible value of having some time. It's not like you're going to become a total Luddite and not have a cell phone. It's just making sure that you carve out some time, putting your phone away out of sight so that you can fully engage in what you're doing. I suspect you're uh, familiar with this concept of flow or being in a flow state. And that's when you're fully engaged and you are able to be really creative and produce a lot. And it's so satisfying because you're sort of executing at your sort of optimal capabilities. The like having your closing out of email, putting your phone away is uh, are very easy ways to increase the likelihood and create your space to increase your likelihood of getting into a flow state. What about the uh, the speed of experience? So if I'm having dinner with, you know, let's say my wife and cell phones are away, we're at a restaurant versus, um, I don't know, I'm playing like beach volleyball, I'm doing something that's really fast or I'm watching a video at one and a half speed. Any, any relation of the speed of experience to the feeling of time and time poverty and attention? Interesting question. I haven't looked at the sort of time perception, the effect of time perceptions, not in terms of how much you have, but in how fast it is on emotion. There is work that supports the saying time flies when you're having fun, um, where they found that when you're enjoying your activity more, then time does feel shorter. You know, a watched pot never boils. That is sort of picking up on the other uh, side of that effect, where when you are waiting for something or the experience itself is unpleasant, it feels like forever, right? But I haven't actually looked at how the other direction of that effect in terms of speed on happiness. Well, here's why I say it. Um, I don't like to watch, like, like, you know, this podcast, we're doing it audio audio only. I've, I've tried video. I don't like it because I feel like it's taking up extra brain space to look at the person. And I feel like I work better listening because then I could just ask good questions and, and think like that. So for me, the added, again, burden, I, I feel like it is of a video. I don't like, I can't perform as well. And then another thing I noticed is when I listen to things like audiobooks, if I listen at too fast a speed, it's too much and I can't enjoy it. And if I listen at too slow a speed, I'm like, come on. So again, there seems to be like a sweet spot of a little bit faster keeps my attention, but too fast is too much and too slow is too slow. I don't know, again, with around activities, if there's, I would guess there's an ideal speed for various activities that would help get you, you know, in flow and help get you feeling your best. Yeah, it's interesting because I mean, to your initial point, we do have sort of a finite amount of cognitive capacity to sort of be processing things at once. And actually you're astute in that it requires a lot of um, brain power to watch other people's faces because we are sort of deciphering so much in those uh, nonverbal cues. And so it's, you know, it's astute for you to recognize that for yourself, you can sort of attend more to what's being said without being sort of distracted by, you know, trying to sort of extrapolate what I'm thinking and going to say based off of my facial expressions. And then, yeah, and then in terms of the speed of experiences, if it is too fast, then it is 
you know, again, it's sort of, you're trying to, you have to, you're sort of required to process at a faster speed, um, which is depleting and therefore probably less enjoyable, but absolutely, since you are very smart and capable, you don't need people to talk at a snail's, snail's pace in order to get the full experience. Yeah, people are really slow. I want to like poke my eye out, you know, I'm like, hurry up, please. So they're too fast. It, it agitates me. I don't like it either. Yeah, it's funny, though, because I don't know if you have also, you know, after I tend to listen to audiobooks at 1.6 speed. For me, that is what feels comfortable. And then when I hear the person at regular speed, it sounds super slow. So there is this sort of adaptation and sort of relative nature to our experience of how fast something is. Yeah, another thing I noticed, I mean, you know, I know we're getting a little off track, but um, (laughs) since you, since you're auditory, you probably will like this. So certain people speak very fast, certain people don't. So I've noticed on YouTube, some people like listen to 2x speed and it's no big deal. And some people like, I have to stay at 1x because they're so quick. And then there's all in between. Same with audiobooks. So just another thing I noticed as well. Yeah. Yeah. Have you, um, maybe it'll be a cool experiment for you to tell your class, like, you know, at some point today, I'm going to teach one thing really slow. And then another point, I'm going to teach something really fast and tell me how you feel and how you react or maybe you observe. That'd be an interesting thing to do with your students. Yeah. I mean, I can easily do that. I already have the stimuli set up. So, you know, in my, one of the versions of my course, it's sort of a hybrid where I have videos of me lecturing that they can watch. And then we have an in-person sort of portion. So in those videos, I can randomly assign them, you know, and make experimental conditions to listen to me at two time speed versus one versus, you know, so, and then I can measure how much they learned in their enjoyment afterwards. That would be a fun experiment. Thanks for the idea. Yeah. My, my wife, believe she has um, you know some level of dyslexia and she learned speed reading and she said it actually helps her get through a passage and have less you know switching of letters um so again i'm guessing they're pushing herself a bit but not too much with some speed reading you know really helps her focus but again if it's too much then you're like ah you blow up and can't you know can't process something so i would guess with with anything time related there's probably going to be a lot of sweet spots for attention, retention, you know, enjoyment, et cetera. Yeah. And what you're picking up on is there's lots of dimensions of time to explore. There's speed, there's the amount of, you know, hours that you have in your day, that sense of time poverty. And in my work, I've also looked at, you know, ways of spending time. So what are the particular activities that one can invest in or spend time on that contribute to greater levels of happiness and fulfillment versus less. And for that exercise that I have in my class to help people identify for themselves, what are those activities um, that are sort of worthwhile versus a waste, I have them track their time over the course of two weeks. And sort of for every half hour, they write down not only the activity that they're doing, but how they feel on a scale of one to 10. So overall positivity versus negativity on that scale of one to 10. And from this data, they can identify for themselves, what are those activities that are associated with the sort of contribute to the most positive emotion or the happiest? And what are those activities in their days 
that are associated with the least amount of happiness. And this is, and also it allows them to identify just how much time they're spending on their various activities um, with this very personalized uh, amount of data. And I walk through this in my book, Happier Hour, where this, this exercise actually, I mean, I walk through all of this research and how we should be investing our time uh, for greater happiness and fulfillment. Um, but I walk through this uh, exercise and how one can analyze their own data to identify, you know, not only what the specific activities, but features of those activities that contribute most to happiness. And what you see often, and this shows up in the research as well, the academic research, is that the happiest times of our day tend to be those that we are sharing and fully paying attention to, again, the role of distraction or lacking distraction, sort of spending quality time with friends and family. So it's, you know, the extent to which you're spending time in a way that makes you feel authentically and truly socially connected leads to a great amount of happiness. Exercise has a really positive effect. Being outside is interesting. It is very, it is a big mood booster. And interestingly, there was a neat study that came out of England where they used geolocation data and could identify, you know, at every moment, where is someone? And then they would ping them and ask them how happy they were. And what they found was that simply being outside had a significant effect, positive effect on their mood. And Yes, it was better if it was sunny outside. And yes, it was better if they were in a sort of natural environment versus more of an urban environment. But it was the, the effect of being outside versus inside had its own uh, role in uh, happiness. Also being well-rested. So even though the activity itself, you know, you're not tracking how you feel while you're asleep the benefits of being well-rested and getting sufficient sleep, which the research suggests is between seven and eight hours of consecutive sleep, um, has dramatic effect on not only cognitive functioning, but your happiness over the course of the subsequent day and across all of the activities that you're engaging in. You know, it'd be really interesting is to study the time of repressed and you so, you know, some people, they always wait to the last second and they do amazing work under pressure. Some people hate that. They want to, you know, do things way earlier. But it would be interesting to see um, someone that considers themselves very distracted at time for, do they procrastinate more or less versus someone that's more relaxed and living at a slower pace? Yeah. Interesting. I haven't, I'm not familiar with work, nor have I done work to look at sort of procrastination as an outcome variable. I know yeah, because myself. it's a very time-based time-based <laughs> activity you know you're deliberately or you know your, your willpower is not not you but someone's willpower oh, sorry about that cut that out um someone's willpower is is not sufficient where they um they keep putting themselves either deliberately or accidentally in a a time poor situation and then they gotta hurry and you know because they procrastinated yeah yeah it's interesting so the sense of being late that does, again, sort of touching back to some of the research I was talking about before in terms of being nice to others and being willing to help others, um, as well as I have found effects on confidence. So when, in terms of regulatory focus, so um, 
we can either be, when we're approaching goals, we can be promotion focused. So like driven to achieve a positive outcome versus prevention focus, which is trying to avoid a negative outcome. Being promotion focused is a more pleasant experience and actually you get better results than being prevention focused. Uh, but what we found in our work is that when people have plenty of time left, so they haven't procrastinated, for instance, then you find that they're more promotion focused. As people are getting closer to the deadline, if they haven't completed the task, they become more prevention focused. And that's where that sort of stress comes in. And it's just about like getting by and not failing as opposed to these more aspirational sort of experience of like wanting the best and working towards the best. So yeah, you, you do see it. And I sort of frame that in terms of confidence and being able to achieve what you set out to do. It's when you have given yourself plenty of time and you have not procrastinated, then, then you see sort of this uh, more positive engagement with our tasks and our goal pursuit. So what are, um, I don't know, what are some things that fascinate you about your own research? What big questions do you want to answer and why? I mean, the the big question that I have been tackling, and there are so many open answers still, is this puzzle of time and happiness. That is how, given that we have limited time in our days, that our lives are finite, how can we at, make the absolute most of the time we have, and not just in terms of efficiency, but really in terms of what is worthwhile and feels fulfilling. And I, I conduct research, which sounds sort of silly, but it's like the research questions that I tackle are those questions that I am personally grappling with. So, you know, touching back to that example of me, you know, wanting to quit my career on the train and move to like a sunny island where I'd have a whole lot more time. My research answered that, in fact, I should not move to the sunny island where I would have a whole lot more time because I would feel a lacking sense of purpose and productivity. But then that doesn't necessarily, given that I'm not gonna quit, how do I solve the problem of feeling like I'm not just getting by, right? How do I exp like invest my time, not only in terms of the activities I dedicate my time to, but in how I sort of, my mindset during the time that I spent to make the most of it so that, you know, days feel fulfilling and not just overly full. And I have some work that actually shows that you can extract so much happiness or there's so much potential happiness, even in little, simple, everyday moments that tend to get sort of they, they tend to not get our attention and therefore, you know, they miss out, we miss out on the potential happiness from them. So when uh, in work, I was looking at the happiness that comes from extraordinary experiences that absolutely get our attention and like happy, extraordinary experiences, like, um, you know, incredible vacations or life milestones, like getting married, graduation, having a baby, or like these wonderful experiences that we spend money on, like going to concerts, right? Is it those experiences or the simple everyday moments when I talked about the role of social connection 
you know, those simple moments, um, you said that you are married. So with your wife, for many, it's, you know, friends, their kids, their pets, noticing, you know, your surroundings, nature, like noticing that it's a beautiful sunset um, or sunrise. And what we found was that among younger people, that among younger people, extraordinary experiences produce greater happiness. But interestingly, among older people, ordinary experiences produced as much happiness as extraordinary experiences. That is, as people got older, and you can understand why. So younger people tend to view their time in life as expansive, right? As you get older, you start recognizing that your time overall in life is, in fact, finite and more limited by recognizing that your time is limited in that sense, not like hours in the day, like the time poverty, but recognizing that the years that we have to live, we can't take them for granted. And what that makes us realize is just how precious our time is. And that draws our attention to even those simple, ordinary moments such that we enjoy great happiness from them. And it's not just age though, because when we led young people to recognize that their futures are in fact finite and limited, then they actually attended more to those simple ordinary moments. And so I think that, um, and I've, you know, sort of been practicing this is that you can actually, you know, while we have lots of demands, you know, there's the work and lots of hours that are sort of spent in a variety of different uh, pursuits and, you know, dimensions and domains of our life, that there's a lot of potential happiness that comes from paying attention during minutes and the hours that we spend. So again, it's not, except at the very extremes of having too little or too much, it's not so much about how much time you have or hours in a day, it's really how you spend those hours. And I'm so excited that sort of pulling all of this research together, pulling the lessons from my course together in my book, Happier Hour, because it is absolutely sort of walking through the research so that they can apply it to their own lives and sort of invest in ways that are happier. Yeah, a couple more thoughts. I was, I've done a, you know, a whole bunch of escape rooms and it feels very different in the beginning than near the end, but you only got a few minutes left. And it's, you know, it's funny, well, not funny, but you see people's personalities come out under pressure. Some people freak out and they're like, that's it, forget it, we're dead. And other people get like super focused and other people just get like really upset, like, oh my God, oh my God, we're, we're out of time, you know. So it's just interesting to see that phenomenon. Again, it's a very time-based thing. Yeah, which um, are you? Oh, I focus in, like, you know, I used to do these years ago with my son and he would be like, that's it, we're doomed, you know. And I would focus and we got out of a lot of rooms, literally sometimes with one second to spare. And I told him, I said, look, Pops, you can never give up. See, we got out. If we gave up, we wouldn't have. So you never know. You got to keep going, you know. So, yeah. That's a I mean, people, good um, lesson overall to keep going and not give up, figure out, you know, yeah. don't quit your job when you're overwhelmed on the train, um, figure out how to, how to stick with it and make the most of it. Well, one, one funny story, quick one is um, when my kids were probably like, you know, eight, eight to 12, uh, we did one escape room and this one lady, she got really stressed and she kept trying to shush them and they called her the shusher. They didn't like her, you know? She, I guess she thought that they were just like in the way, even though they were helping, you know, 
So after that, we 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 reminisced about the shusher, and my kids didn't like her, but she reacted with stress to the environment. It's like we're not gonna die. What's the big deal? But she was just freaking out. So it was just interesting what what that time constraint did to people's minds. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting. Well, I found I was able to solve stuff a lot quicker at the end because it's like do or die situation. That's how I treated it. So it focused my mind. But I guess what I'm saying is this is a very interesting topic to me. Um, I didn't realize there's so many things that are related to time, like in my life and everyone's life. So I just thought it'd be interesting to bring it up. Yeah. I mean, it is. It's the fabric of our lifetime. And that's, you know, I'm again, you know, when you ask like what more, it, it's, it is so rich of a construct of an experience of a resource that there are so many dimensions of figuring out how we experience it, how we can sort of direct it, allocate it. So to sort of optimize and get the most out of the time that we do spend. And I mean, I love this area of work because time is absolutely the sort of fabric, as I said, of our life. How you spend your minutes adds up to your hours, adds up to your days and years and your life overall. And so as a business school professor, you know, there's so much focus in, you know, my contacts and even in our culture on money as that critical resource, which sure, how you spend your money can sort of signal something about you, but how you spend your time is literally how you're spending your life and therefore who you are. And so it's an absolute, like if there's sort of any takeaway, it's just how important time is. And once you start thinking about time and drawing your attention to it, that in itself has a really positive effect because it makes people more deliberate and intentional in how they're spending it. And my work shows that drawing people's attention to time, um, even for instance, you know, doing that time tracking assignment, simply drawing attention to how you're spending your time makes people spend it better because they're more thoughtful and they start spending in ways that are aligned with one's own personal values. Um, and is is more satisfying as opposed to wasted, which so much of our time does get wasted. You know, we were already talking about the role of technology and in particular social media, you know, in the time tracking results of my students, for instance, they're spending a lot of hours in their week, even though they think it's sort of, you know, a minute here, you know, a few minutes here, a few minutes there, those minutes add up. And if you look at their ratings of how they feel during that time, it is not positive. It's not like it's a source of pleasure and joy, nor is it productive, right? It's not contributing to their sort of broader goals in life or even the tasks that they need to complete in their days. Um, But it is subsuming a lot of time in a very mindless way. And again, to the extent that one becomes more intentional or sort of thoughtful about time, therefore intentional in how they spend it, then people automatically sort of reallocate towards better ways of spending. Yeah, I just realized there's a lot of things that I know you don't have enough, no one has enough time. It's a joke, but no joke. But, you know, escape rooms, people that are unfortunately in jail, that have a lot of idle time, athletics, where people are under tremendous time constraints for time trials. Uh, There's all these jobs and positions where time plays probably a huge role, you know, like for police, decision-making in the spur of the moment, whether someone's going to hurt them or not, you know, someone's adversarial or not. Um, So, I mean, you could do a time study per industry, how people perceive it. There's just tons of things that could be done. 
Yeah. And there's a lot that is being done. And there's uh, so even, you know, as you talked about the role, another dimension of time in the workplace is degree of flexibility. Um, sort of coming out of COVID, flexibility in one's time is one of the primary dimensions that uh, employees look for in terms of where they want to work, as well as so it affects uh, recruitment efforts by organizations, as well as retention. You know, we see this great resignation for reasons that I would argue are all sort of grounded in time. It's lack of flexibility. We have come to see, so, you know, when I talked about the time tracking research, so while social connection is among the happiest, is, is the happiest activities, the least happy activities across Americans are commuting and then work hours and housework. Um, and when, you know, in the pandemic where so many people, their commute time um, got, was no longer a part of their workday. Uh, and this was, you know, historically in way of an activity that was so negative that then when it's like they're asked to go back <laughs> into the office, which involves for the average American, it's a half, they have a half hour commute each way. And that's the average, you know, there's certainly those who have way more than that. So that means an hour of their day is spent commuting in a way that is an activity that is, feels like a waste. Um, in Happier Hour, I sort of talk about ways that you can make some of those wasteful ways of spending feel more fulfilling and actually make them more worthwhile by bundling them with other activities. So here we, you know, you are doing this wonderful Finding Genius podcast. So in allowing listeners to learn <laughs> during this time, they can do this while commuting to make their commute time more fulfilling. They can do it, listen while folding their laundry to make that chore more enjoyable and fulfilling. And so there are ways to uh, make wasted time feel more worthwhile. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, just going back to one subject that you were talking about before is um, age. So from what I understand, as people get older, their perception of time speeds up. But yet, like you mentioned, they're more happy to, to do slower things. So, you know, I'm like getting into, you know, fortunately, my late 40s. Um, but I feel that too. Like, I feel like time's going much faster. But then again, I'm more patient and I'm more slow with certain things. Like, you know, my wife says I drive like a grandmother now. But I'm in no rush anymore. And when I was younger, yeah. I wanted to rush around. And, and even though you got lots of time, you just feel like, oh, I want to do this, do that, be moving, going. And so it's interesting, all these, these interplays, all these, um, I don't know, I guess seesaws of perceived time versus how fast you move, et cetera. It's just, it's just interesting to me. Yeah, well, it is interesting. And I actually have work on looking at the role of age in how we experience time. So sort of absolutely supporting <laughs> what you just shared about your experience. What we found is not only, you know, I already shared research on the types of experiences that elicit greater happiness changes with age, but so does even the way we experience happiness. So we found actually analyzing millions of blog posts or expressions of emotion, like when someone writes, I feel or I'm feeling happy in historically the sort of blogosphere, we found that there were sort of two expressions or clusters of types of happiness. There was that sort of excited happiness that as you were describing it, sort of faster 
um, louder happiness versus calm contentment. And what we found was younger people are more likely to express and feel happiness more in terms of excitement. As you get older, you start to, or folks start to experience happiness more as calm contentment and sort of picking up on that dimension that you mentioned in terms of speed, that calm contentment is, is less, <laughs> is less speedy. So yes, age also uh, plays a, a very much a role. As you mentioned, like as you're noting, there are so many wonderful um, sort of questions around time that are being answered and so many more to be answered. Mm. I guess last thing, um, I, I interviewed Johan Hari. He did a book called Stolen Focus. I don't know if, um, if you've read it or not, but he talks about time and he put himself on a, you know, like no technology experience um, and up near Boston somewhere in Nantucket for a whole summer. So it was just an interesting read on his perception of time and how things affected him and his level of distraction that may play into your research. I don't know. Yeah. And it absolutely does. And I would say that for listeners, you don't need though, to like go move off the grid for an entire summer that you can actually, you know, I have my students do that six hour digital detox and that's a big chunk of time that um, that's just to like sort of fully get them through that withdrawal experience to start experiencing the benefits of not being distracted and being fully engaged um, by being off of uh, sort of digital, <laughs> you know, like the social media in particular and um, sort of passive screen time. But once you, you, it doesn't have to be even those big chunks of hours. It's simply, you know, having what I call no phone zones, as we already mentioned, you know, during dinner, like even if you have a half hour or a coffee date, I have coffee dates with my daughter. It's a half hour, put my phone away um, and you get the benefits. So I'll just say it's actually quite accessible. And, you know, it's just, again, being about it, being intentional and deliberate of figuring out when are you going to put your phone away? When, what are you going to, what activities are you going to make no phone zones um, so that you make those times more quality and richer and getting the most out of those hours that you are spending? Yeah. Have you thought about creating a course or integrating it with your curriculum? Well, you, you have, you have, you've done the six hour detox, but um, for the public at large, you know, all the things you're learning sound incredibly important to me. And it sounds like it would help society a lot. So have you thought about, are you able to do a course and offer um, it or, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, that's absolutely what my book is, Happier Hour, that it is based off of seeing the impact of the course. And obviously there's limited spaces in my classroom, um, but I wanted these learnings to be uh, sort of more or available to the broader public. And so I put it, I wrote it <laughs> in a way that is digestible and accessible so that folks can absolutely apply these insights um, to uh, make their time better. Well, excellent, Cassie. Um, so unfortunately, not everyone can take your course, but um, so the best thing is what, get your book or, you know, let's, let's recap the listeners. How can they start learning about, you know, all the things that you know and get help? So, you know, please restate the name of your book where it's available and where they can find out more about you. Yes. Um, so all of it is in Happier Hour, my new book, 
happier hour, how to beat distraction, expand your time and focus on what matters most. And you can buy it anywhere that you would buy a book um, on Amazon at your local bookstore. Um, and uh, my website, www.cassiemholmes.com. Um, there you can find information about my research and the book and where I will be giving talks and this wonderful podcast that we've just done, for instance. And so, yeah, happier hour. Excellent. Cassie, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. It was a joy. Remember, before you go, to grab your one penny bag of pine pollen for all the amazing all-natural hormonal support that men and women the world over are raving about. Try it out and see how it works for you. All you have to do is head to GeniusPollen.com to grab your bag today. Within days, you may be able to notice greater energy, more focus, added recovery, and more. Again, please visit GeniusPollen.com to learn more now. Thank you. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.